Norwich City delivered an early Halloween horror show as they imploded to a club record equaling defeat at Chelsea. There were no chainsaws involved, but it was very much a football massacre at Stamford Bridge as the Canaries were thrashed 7-0 by the European champions. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast, where we will join the vast majority of City fans in wallowing in Premier League misery to start with, but we will swiftly start looking forward to what happens next. I'm your host, Dave Freezer. We come to you in association with Future Radio 107.8 FM, and joining us is Paddy Davitt and Connor Southwell. At the time of recording on Sunday morning, Daniel Farkett remains head coach, and we've heard no suggestion that that will change ahead of Sunday's game against Leeds. But clearly, this is an extremely painful time for the club, so it's difficult to say that with certainty. Connor, I'll come to you first. We've seen the damning analysis from the pundits. Joe Cole has said it looks like under-18s against men at times. Jermaine Gina said it was shocking. Daniel Farker admitted it was embarrassing. Grant Hanley has offered an apology. How are you feeling about it all the morning after that horrible day? Yeah, probably even a bit worse than than I did at the final whistle at Stamford Bridge yesterday. I think if you, if you're connected with Norwich City in in any way, whether you're a fan, a, a former player, uh, you do the job we do. I think it's it's hard to watch that performance and reflect on that performance with anything other than embarrassment. To be honest, it wasn't a a performance befitting of a Premier League team. It wasn't a performance befitting of a Norwich City team, and. I think the the frustration is that you, you can accept going to Stamford Bridge and getting beaten at any time, any team, that can happen to anyone. And we, we say it a lot on this podcast as well, there's a way to get beat, there's a way to lose a football match. Um, you might not be as good as your opponents, but at least have some commitment, some heart, some fight, at least go and press the ball, at least work as a collective. And none of that was on display. It was um, They were comprehensively beaten in, in every single department. Um, there was not really a bright spot. There wasn't a player on, on the pitch in yellow and green who, who offered probably any positivity. And I think the, the majority of the game, Daniel Farker stood on the touchline shaking his head. And I think there would have been... 1,500 in the away end, plus however many Norwich fans were, were watching at home um, on, on TV, who who would have been shaking their heads with him? It was a, it was a humiliation. It was annihilation, really, wasn't it? And um, yeah, I think Chelsea will, will probably have had tougher training sessions. It's it's really difficult to reflect on that with with anything other than than embarrassment. I think for me, and and I would imagine a lot of Norwich City team, uh, fans are, are waking up this morning. Uh, and sometimes, as we as we said off air, sometimes you can wake up after a result and it processes a bit more, and you can maybe reflect on it um, a, a little bit better. But actually, if if anything, it probably feels a little bit more painful, um, particularly given the reaction that has followed and the criticism, um, and the, probably the perception of Norwich as well amongst people who who aren't fans. It's 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 painful. It's it's really sore. It's really raw. Um, and I think the the people feeling it most will be the supporters who sadly again are watching their team in the Premier League getting beaten too regularly too easily um and this also while other promoted teams are, are winning games and uh, and performing relatively well so it stings because I think it's it's more the fact that Norwich fans have been here before this is this isn't the the first time they've been in the Premier League this isn't the first time that they've they've seen a, a Norwich team in the Premier League like this it's it's happening far too often um, and it's happening too regularly and it's happened before under this head coach as well. And I think when you you kind of sit here and you think about two years ago to be in a position where you're looking at a team now, which is maybe even worse than the one that was performing two years ago that ended up with 21 points. I think that's probably quite a scary prospect. Um, it's what, 19 Premier League games now without a win? 
that needs to change against Leeds, doesn't it? Because if it's 20, then I think we're going to be in a position where forget soul searching and everything else. I think there's going to be some some very serious questions put at the door of this head coach. And um, sadly, just to, to round off kind of this opening monologue, I suppose, um, in the first nine matches, I think everyone, us, fans, ex-players, current players, current staff even maybe as well, will have been looking for evidence that this time is going to be different, that they were going to have enough about them to stay up. And you have to say whether it's performance data, whether it's what you're seeing with your eyes, whether it's results, seeing nothing so far to suggest that this isn't going to be another long march to the championship. And then that raises questions again about whether everyone involved has enough stamina to go again. We talk so often about this being a roller coaster, but if you go around the roller coaster seven times, by the eighth time, it's probably not as entertaining anymore. So, yeah, it's it's really painful, and um, you can't help but think if, if it, well, everyone knows what's going to happen if it if it doesn't go on if this goes on. Sorry, um, but uh, it doesn't get any easier to watch or accept. Really, um, yeah, I, I think that's it. Really, just just pain and embarrassment and, and humiliation. I'm sure a lot of No City fans are, are waking up. Uh, as we record on Sunday morning, thinking probably exactly the same thing. Yeah, there's, there's no sugarcoating it. There's no leg to stand on. The, the club can't complain about people moaning. Quite literally, they've on, only lost 7-0 before three times in the club's history. Twice of those were in the 1930s. Uh, they lost at Walsall in D- Division 3 South in, the thir- in 1930. They lost at Sheffield Wednesday in the second tier in 1938. And the one that we'll all remember is Manchester City in 2013 under Chris Hewton when they also lost 7-0. They actually bounced back from that one. They won 3-1 at home against West Ham in the next game and they won three of the next five. I had a quick look earlier. So that's that's a, a an interesting element to it because they, they'd also lost 4-0 at Man United in the League Cup in a few days before that that game uh, in, in the Hewton era. Uh, technically, the club's record defeat is 10-2 against Swindon, but that was in the Southern League in 1908. So I think really when the club joined the Football League in 1920 is where, where you go from, or certainly that's where I think they should go from. Uh, in terms of those records. Joe Cole was on BT Sport and, as I mentioned earlier, was was very strong in his criticism. Also pointing out, Pad, that Chelsea eased to the 7-0 win without Romelu Lukaku, with N'Golo Kante on the bench, with no Timo Werner, who was also injured, Christian Pulisic also injured. They did still have four Ballon d'Or nominees in that team, two of them in the starting lineup in Jorginho and Mount, who got the hat-trick. An interesting question was put to me in our live blog, the NCFC live blog at pinkham.com every match day. In terms of percentage, how much of this game was Chelsea's class and how much of the percentage was Norwich being bad? Impossible to answer, really. I mean... I think I went 70-30 at the time, but, you know, I was in the moment, 70-30 in terms of Chelsea being good. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I think I'd have to raise the thirty percent threshold for Norwich being bad. They were atrocious. Um, or they were missing some of those players with the autograph books because they looked starstruck <laughs> uh, on the pitch. And uh, you know, there's a way. As Gonna said, as I said yesterday, there's a way to get beat. That isn't it. Um, that lack of intensity. I mean, we'll pick out probably the key area, which was Kovacic and, and Jorginho completely dominated McLean. Norman, Lisa Malou wasn't even a contest. Um, embarrassingly one-sided, that area. And that ultimately, you look at a lot of the goals, 
it's got the imprint of Kovacic or, or Jorginho on on those goals. And um, Mount will obviously get the headlines. Reese James, excellent as well, two young English players. But they they were the they were the two really probably um, ultimately who underpinned that. Well, mauling essentially, um, and you know, for 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 me, I can't. What I can't fathom is that. You know, Farkin must be able to see that. You know, we we were in a, a very close vantage point to him, and and he just seemed a very frustrated man. He was almost conducting an orchestra, but they clearly wasn't playing the tune he wanted. He's just arms were windmilling about at the front of his technical area. Surely, surely he can see that Jorginho and and Kovacic midway through that second and first half even um, are so dominant. And why doesn't he change it? Whether that's personnel or whether that's setup. You know, a lot of talk has been made about base formations, but. You know that that needed an in-game change, and it might not have had any material impact ultimately. But um, but it was so easy uh, for Chelsea. And yes, I thought within the game um, they they coasted for large parts, and it was just little foot went down gently on the accelerator, bang, move, goal, sit back again for another ten or fifteen minutes, wait, Norwich doing nothing, not threatening us, bang, pass, pass, goal, move, and. Uh, you know, ultimately, there's not much more to add to what Connor's already said, that it was a, an atrocious display on the back of two very encouraging, albeit still raising questions about the lack of attacking productivity, but at least um, gave the impression they were, could be competitive. Uh, and yes, Chelsea aren't Burnley or Brighton, but they all inhabit the same Premier League. And um, and if if Norwich essentially are writing off uh, club club games against the elite this season, uh, which was more or less Daniel's inference before and after the game, then it's going to have to come against the Brightons and the Burnleys and nil-nil draws aren't going to be enough. And uh, these next five games starting with Leeds will probably ultimately decide his fate and, and on a broader point, probably Norwich's fate in terms of their Premier League status, but it isn't looking good at the moment. I think that was a that was a major retrograde step to, to lose in a, in a spirited, battling fashion where you've had a go and um, and maybe Chelsea's greater quality, even without a Lukaku or a Werner or a Pulisic, has won the day, then let's be honest, you know, they're, they're Champions League winners for, for a reason. They're top of the Premier League for a reason. That They are a very, very good outfit. It's probably as good a sign as any in Europe at the minute. So no disgrace to lose there. There is in losing seven and, and raising the white flag and... Um, and looking a rabble by the end, they, they, they just looked like a, a group of individuals who, but to a man, pitched up there with no belief that they could pull off a result. And if they don't believe, why should the fans believe? Quite. Um, right. Normally we go through the game um, sort of stage by stage, don't we? But I want to fly through that, really, and um, just quickly go through the, the seven goals briefly. Connor, I'll come to you at half time, and then Pad, I'll come to you at full time. Uh, and then I want us to, to move forward and start talking about what this means for Farker, what it means in terms of the Leeds and Brentford games. Um, because this was a 12.30 kickoff, it was live on BT, it was second on match of the day in the end because Watford went and came back to win 5-2 at Everton, which is an unbelievable result. And we will no doubt talk about that further as well. But Daniel stuck with the 3-5-2, he kept faith with Sargent up front alongside Pukki, went with the team. I, I thought that was fair enough. I had... I thought that keeping a settled team, keeping with the experience would was sensible, given they were on the back of two nil-nil draws. I just could not see that performance coming. Those same set of players lurching from two clean sheets to just being so far off it. And Daniel admitting that basically they were, in terms of thought, just so slow to react to what Chelsea offered. Um, first goal, eight minutes. 
eighth minute, Mason Mount, lovely finish, but it comes from Kabak and Lise Malou just trailing at Hudson Odoi on the Chelsea left. Norman gets dragged far too deep. McLean is outnumbered as Gibson heads the ball out from the cross, and then it's a nice finish which Mount squeezes between his legs. The second comes in the 18th minute. Josh Sargent actually won the ball high at the pitch, but then a poor pass from Pukki gave the ball to Thiago Silva. Sargent doesn't do it anywhere near enough to try and win the ball back. Lise Malou also slow to try and stop Kovacic, who just slides a lovely pass between the gaping hole between Kabak and Hanley. And then it's a it's a tidy finish from Hudson-Odoi. Just has Krull to beat into the bottom right-hand corner. And it's 3-0 by half-time. 42nd minute is the third goal. Kabak really plays Krull into trouble. Bad back pass, which Krull has to shank left-footed straight out to Kovacic. Jorginho out to Mount. McLean's too slow. And Yanulis has completely lost Reese James. And then it's a nice little chip over Tim Krull for 3-0 at half-time. Now, Connie, you're the 3-4-3 man. You're our official 3-4-3 correspondent. That's what the drum you've been banging for the last few weeks, weeks really, isn't it? In terms of that's where you're hoping they're going to progress to eventually so Daniels decides at that point at 3-0 at half time to I guess start laying the the building blocks for moving to that shape in the weeks ahead brings Williams on for Yanoulis just like he did at Manchester City and Rashica comes on for Lise Malou on the left wing with Sargent on the right wing so at half time what what were your thoughts in terms of him doing that rather than I don't know how you shut up shot more from a from a three fight <laughs> short of just telling all 10 players to stand in, in your own penalty area. But yeah, at, at half time, what, what did you think of him making that move? Um, yeah, I was quite surprised. I, th- I think because you, when you're losing a game three now, as you say there, you probably maybe look to go the other way and make sure that it doesn't become any more damaging, particularly given the nature of their first half performance. Um, if anything, I felt there was probably a bit more of an argument to start the way he did. He went at half time rather than go to what he did at half time. I think if anything, they needed to get more men into if they possibly could get more men into midfield and and, and make sure that they they shut down the supply line that Kovacic and and, and Jorginho were providing. I mean, anyone watching that game would have thought social di- uh, distancing had been sort of re-implemented because Norwich didn't get anywhere near those two all, all game really. Um, so yeah, I mean to to essentially chuck on another attacker and hope that that gave them something the other way. I felt was was a questionable decision at, at that point. I think it then becomes even more questionable when when Ben Gibson does what Ben Gibson does in the second half, which 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 will come on to obviously. So I didn't necessarily think it was right, but I, I guess in his mind he had to do something. And I've kind of been thinking actually this morning about when when you're a team that maybe doesn't have as much quality as your opponents, well. What, what do you do in that situation? And my mind keeps going back to to what Ishmael did at Barnsley last season. It's probably not the most relevant or, or pertinent example that you can use, but he, he essentially made them perform very, very well in, in albeit the championship, a different level, whatever. But he, he made them perform above their ability, as we see in this season, simply by implementing a game plan that saw them press really intensely, do something a little bit different, cause their opposition headaches. I just don't see Norwich doing anything similar at the moment. I think they're, they're too easy to play against. Teams can work them out quickly. We saw Chelsea do it after basically five minutes where they worked out actually they had a little bit of space. And then as soon as they worked that out, it was almost like someone had flicked a switch and that was it really. Um, yeah, I, it, it's difficult now, I think, after a, a 7-0, and I'm sure we'll get into sort of what direction Norris is to go from, from here. But um talk about a 3-4-3. I mean, what, what on earth does Daniel Farker do now? Because do you, do you 
go to that? And do you hope that that offers you a little bit more at the top end of the pitch, knowing that you've just come out of a 7-0 defeat? Or do you stick with a 3-5-2? Again, probably questions we'll ask later on, but I didn't think it was probably the right call at that time. I, I felt they probably needed a bit more pace up top. I, I probably would have brought Rashica on for, for Sargent maybe, but to throw in another attacker, I think at that stage when maybe what was necessary was to ensure that that didn't become any more damaging was, um, was yeah, questionable for, for me, but obviously speaking with hindsight. Yes, and it didn't prove too successful because another four goals followed, including a red card. Uh, to be fair, Rashica did have a chance, didn't he, at 3-0 uh, uh, when Pukki had got a little deflection on a on a pass from uh, Kovacic, I think it was, wasn't it? And then Rashica is through on goal, pounces on it, but Mendy comes out of his goal, does really well. That was actually credited as a shot on target, which I think was quite generous. <laughs> um, the, the only one of Norwich's three that was on target, the, be the best chance really was Kabak in the first half, wasn't it? Who uh, fired one over the bar after striding forward and got a deflection on it. But for some reason, the referee didn't give a corner. Um, Chelsea had 23 shots and 13 of them were on target overall. So we got 12 minutes of the second half before uh, another goal was conceded. Um, Williams on the left, right in front of Farker, challenges with James in sort of midair. They both go for the ball, decides to go down and try and win a foul. I didn't think it was a foul. Daniel Farker didn't sound particularly convincing that it was a foul after the game. But then they just stride through Jorginho and Mount cut out Norman with a 1-2. Kovacic sets up Chilwell. And again, it is a very nice finish. We are talking about the European champions and Premier League leaders. Um, the fifth goal comes just uh, five minutes later. Uh, Kovacic and uh, Hudson-Odoi gets Hudson-Odoi down the left. Aaron's deflection. Krul can't keep it out. It's 5-0. Then Gibson gets sent off in the 61st minute. 5-0. <laughs> Already on a yellow card. Slams into a tackle on James. Off he goes. He gets a one-game ban. Punches the advertising hoardings above the tunnel as he goes in. And then this phase of the game, Pad, is what I'm referring to as salt being rubbed into the wound. As we, we sort of sat there laughing, didn't we? Because it was getting so ridiculous. But... Um, Krull makes a few good saves. Then Norman handles in the box. As soon as we see the replay in the press box, we know what's coming before the referees even looked at the screen. They get the penalty. Krull saves, but then same situation. We see the replays. We know that they're going to uh, make them take it again because Krull comes off his line. That's the laws of the game. Tough luck. Mount just about squeezes it past Krull's foot for 6-0 in the 85th minute. And then the last one, Loftus-Cheek for 7-0 in the first minute of added time. He's just about onside after a VAR check, uh, draws Krull out of his goal, squares to mount to complete his hat-trick. And that, Mr. Dabbit, was 7-0. And means that it's 23 games without a Premier League win in London for Norwich, still going back to that win at Tottenham in 2012. Yeah, I mean, funny off that point and the one you made at the, the outset, DF, about this isn't just Farker or... Weber in in the Premier League with Norwich, it, it feels like I don't know what it is. There's a there's a there's a, a UEA academic study there to be made about what is it about Norwich City in the Premier League era, really. Um, so you're talking sort of Nigel Worthington onwards, aren't you? Ultimately, uh, well, sort of modern Premier League era that they're not able to um, certainly be uh, residually competitive enough. I think. Uh, I really don't. Well, well, as I say, we'd have to, you know, get the the brightest academic brains across Norfolk to uh, come together to uh, crunch some numbers and um, extrapolate some of the findings because 
what we're experiencing now is what has been experienced in different phases under Hewton, Neil Adams to a lesser extent, um, Worthington, um, and Alex Neil, of course, as well. And um, I don't know. Is it a resigned that is Norwich in the Premier League and we can't hope for any better? I'd, you'd like to think that a code can be cracked and we're probably veering dangerously into self-sustainable model territory and I don't think we need to go down that route um, per se. But uh, it just feels that on a, on, a, on a more ephemeral point, you know, can Norwich sustain themselves in the Premier League? Whatever the the they're not doing on the pitch. And I, I don't know, ultimately, maybe that's going too deep down a philosophical uh, wormhole. But, um, you know, if it, if it fails as graphically as it's looking like it's going to fail this time around, then then I think there's going to have to be, not just on the football side of the business, but maybe in the terms of the ownership and, and that's going to have to be revisited. Or, you know, ultimately, despite all the angst and embarrassment and disappointment that Norwich fans feel at the minute, an acceptance maybe that this is the cycle, you know, and are you happy to have good years in the championship and then diabolical years in the Premier League? I don't know. It's, I don't think it's a, it's a palatable relationship or a palatable um, state of affairs that no, no Norwich fan wants to be going through what they're going through at the minute, watching their side look so far off it. But how does it change? I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And, and ultimately nobody who's been associated with Norwich since probably Worthington's era, has really had the answers. Bar, you know, there was a season under Lambert, of course, and then Hewton kept up, kept him up that that first season under him. But either side of that, it's been pretty much where we are now is what Norwich fans have had to experience in the Premier League era. So I don't know. We've gone a bit too deep there, but given we were just dissecting a, a defeat at Chelsea, but you begin to think: is there? Is it? Is it? Ultimately, we can get into the Farkham managerial status, but changing the manager, does that change anything materially? Not sure. Yeah, it is a moral dilemma at the moment, isn't it? And I think most City fans were there when Alex Neil went. And then, of course, the the new regime managed to find some way of making it work. And the, the tantalising thing about it all, I think, for me, is that just one season of survival would change the narrative so much. You wouldn't have to sell your best player. You might still do it because... Stuart Webber might decide that it's time to let Todd Cantwell or Max Aarons go or whatever and use that money well. And they'd be able to spend a little bit more. And every year they stay up, that self-funded model would almost become um, the envy of the rest of English football. But until you manage it, then you're just leaving yourself open to, to ridicule almost, aren't you? Because you're trying to play almost a different game to everyone else or you're playing the same game by, by different rules. And it is very difficult for for a lot of supporters to stomach, and I can un, I can understand when things are this bleak that well you can't really ask fans to keep the faith right now. It, even if you come out with some sort of tub thumping message, it it's difficult to get that through to some people who will have just made up their mind by this point, won't they? Um, Connor, I wanted to throw Daniel Farker's quote your way, which I wasn't particularly keen on, uh, and I think his he's maybe too honest for his own good at times. Um, in his post match, he said. Even with our best possible performance, if Chelsea had a good day, they would still win. Now, that's true. We know it's true. Everyone knows it's true. They are owned by a billionaire. They are European champions, top of the Premier League. They have got some sensational players who, thankfully, some of them weren't even playing on Saturday. But is it? do you want to hear it? Do the players want to hear that? Do the fans want to hear that? Is it good in terms of psychology 
to actually say those words rather than just finding some way of putting an inspirational spin on that? I think there's a, a time for realism and a time where fans almost want to be lied to a little bit. And these situations are, are probably those. And I know, I mean, we, we had it two years ago, didn't we? We had this debate every week. It'd be, oh, it'd be a miracle if Norwich could stay up. Well, maybe what Paddy said there in the mentality aspect, that has to come from the top. There's a reason Norwich City players walked out of Stamford Bridge with their autograph books. And uh, as Paddy said earlier, it's because they've already been told that the task they're going out to do is the toughest in world football. Immediately, that does not set a, a particularly good tone. And um, Paddy references the, the Paul Lambert team, which is, is obviously the one that was capable of staying in this league. Well, that went to Anfield and it got a draw. It went to Chelsea and it, it didn't buckle. And they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with some really big teams and got some brilliant results in, in really tough places. 3-3 against Arsenal off the top of my head. There are numerous others. You can't just strike a line through 12 games and say, oh yeah, well, we're going to lose those anyway, because it, it's the mentality effect of what that does to, to your players. So for me, there's an aspect of that that comes from the top. And um, no doubt, I've got no doubt in my mind that if you're Brentford and Thomas Frank isn't sending his team out there against Liverpool, Chelsea, who they played a week ago and only lost 1-0 and were probably unlucky not to get a point. Um, there's no way he's sending his players out there saying, oh, well, this is the toughest task in world football and and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I think I think the tone of it has to has to change. It has to change. I'm not a psychologist, but that cannot be good as a professional footballer. Um, we don't know, obviously, what the message is internally, but I think there's Norwich City players at the moment are going, going out to certain games without there being an expectation. And Again, all of this stuff in matches about being competitive. Well, actually, the aim has to be higher than that. It doesn't matter how you do it or in what games you do it or the, who the opponent is. They need to get points. They need to get wins. They need to get draws as well, which are vitally important uh, across the season. And you need to do that irrespective of, of the opposition. If, if you're on a pitch with them for 90 minutes, it's 11 v 11. And, and OK, you may not be as good as Chelsea, but be the best version of Norwich City that you can be. And that has to be the message. And um, whilst it's setting targets like being competitive or, um, you know, 99 times out of 100, we lose this game. Yeah, it's true. It's realistic. It's it's maybe tempering expectations a little bit, but it's not it's not working on the pitch, is it? It didn't work in, in, in the last Premier League campaign. It's not working this time. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, so I, I don't know the exact effects it can have on people and, and, and messaging and whatnot. But as Paddy said, that must feed into the mentality side of it because um, everyone will remember Chris Hutton coming out before before a game and and, and almost hyping up the opposition. This this kind of feels um, like squashing Norwich a little bit because they've got some they've got some really good talent and um, at, at the moment they're they're not utilising it and they're, and they're almost um, well rolling over and and, and letting their, their their tummies get tickled by teams who have a lot of quality and. You know, if, if you're not as good as a team, as I said earlier, you at least show some fight, some commitment. There's a minimum level that you have to meet. There are fundamentals and non-negotiables that you have to raise the bar to. Um, and at the moment, they're not doing that. And, and and sadly, I think whenever whenever a team is like that, a team is always reflective of its head coach. And and that's probably where the buck has to stop, doesn't it? So it's it's difficult. It's difficult. And, and being a Norwich manager in the Premier League is difficult with the resource and... Um, the environment and and as Paddy says, this this narrative and the perception of Norwich as well. That's a difficult thing to manage all of that. Um but at some point you have to show you have to show some guts and you have to find find a way. And at the moment they're not doing that and and, and Daniel Farker isn't doing that either. And 
if anything, just strip it all back. Whether it's you can you know you can debate whether it's having an impact on performances or not. Strip it all back. It's it's not it's not good PR for the for the fans ultimately, um, and it's not sending the right messages out of what Norwich City want to be in the Premier League either. So yeah, it's it's not working, and, and I don't think it's really helping anyone. No, I think there's there's a craving almost of that spirit that Sheffield United had in that first season that was so successful, that Burnley have had for a long time, that Leeds have. You know, they're they're Northern clubs and they go down to London because they want to, you know, piss on the party, frankly. Well, we were, they... we were, sorry to interrupt, but we were talking about Turf Moor a couple of weeks ago. We went there, it's almost like a siege mentality, isn't it? It's them against yeah. the world. Um, Norwich don't have that. Carrow is a nice place to come and play. Um, and... Norwich are probably a nice team to play and, and they don't have that sort of us feet the world mentality that maybe they did have um, under Paul Lambert and why they were so successful and, and it's not um, they need to roll their sleeves up and go out and two foot people that's not the case at all I think it, it's yeah. just it's a mentality point isn't it and um, at the moment that that feels that feels quite off I think yeah Leeds fans it's we're Leeds we're Yorkshire we're not going to be cowed by anyone particularly by London clubs they travel with spirit and hope don't they and there's there's not enough of that. It's it's felt, you know, maybe Daniel's just too nice and just too honest for his own good at times. And he does obviously say some of the right things in with the mix. But just at the moment, it doesn't feel like that balance is, is correct. All of this made worse, of course, Pad. Well, we're travelling home and we can hear the Watford goals going in. Um, made even worse by the Chelsea fans in having quite a rowdy party on the same uh, tube carriage as us for, for a while <laughs> away from Stamford Bridge. But you, you watch the Watford highlights and... Ranieri obviously had a very painful first game. Was it 5-0 at home to Liverpool? They lost. But you can see they are fighting for every second ball. They're pressing. They're fighting. They are in Everton's face. And then they end up scoring some very good goals with a, with a great deal of spirit. So I guess where this whole discussion has come round to is, is to Daniel Farker, is to what happens next. And, you know, the mention of Lambert there. Um, I've even seen some people jokingly suggest bring Lambert back. I don't think anyone seriously is saying that. And that's that's where I think this is settled on today, is that a lot of people are calling for Daniel Farker to go. There's no avoiding that. Um, but I think the bigger question almost is, well, who do you replace Farker with? With everything that we've just said, with the model, with the self-funded restrictions and stuff, they've got to, Stuart Webber has, has got to be able to go to the board and propose that he has a better option than Daniel Farker, who can now take this team on. So, you know, who is that? Steve Bruce just come out of Newcastle looking like he very much needs a holiday. I don't think he's going to be jumping back into football. Seems unlikely. He, you know, he might fit the right sort of profile. He's got the Norwich links and things like that. Roy Hodgson, how, how old is he now? 72, something like that. I, someone even mentioned Martin O'Neill yesterday. But, you know, I think he's kind of yesterday's man. He didn't go very well at, at Nottingham Forest. And talking about people like Eddie Howe, Frank Lampard, that's not going to happen. They're not going to come to Norwich in, with the financial restrictions that they've got and in the situation that they are in. So this isn't a straightforward decision. It's not just Daniel Farker's not doing well. We've got to move on from him. Absolutely not. I, I don't straight off the bat that, that I can't, I just do not see a firefighting type appointment, which is Hodgson et al. Um, that that just flies in the face of, of the deep, foundations they've tried to put in place the philosophy and the cultures and uh, not being buffeted by what happens on a Saturday or a Sunday in the Premier League or a Tuesday or a Wednesday in the Championship um, over a course of 90 minute game um, and for that reason alone I, I just don't see Stuart Webber going out and getting in uh, somebody who isn't um, essentially a Daniel Farker clone who's willing to buy into the model willing to work in a sporting director head coach European 
continental style model de- developing still young players albeit in the premier league and 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 the most as we saw yesterday brutally illustrated the most demanding environment you could have to try and hot house younger players particularly any player but certainly younger players but that's still one of the pillars of what Weber and Farker have, have erected and having a say in transfers, but ultimately, um, you know, it's it's Weber and his recruitment team who who, uh, who are making the calls on that. So, for that reason, for those reasons alone, unless unless it's a it's a right three four years down the line, uh, a model that's delivered two championship titles is delivered not in the minute, but certainly uh, for the most part, a very attractive brand of football that is stabilised financially. Uh, a club that was heading to the abyss. Um, the infrastructure developments that we saw again recently um, at Colney and uh, uh, continuing to, to on, ongoing developments there planned in the future. All of that, are you saying, right, that's the end of that and now we're going to go back to the, the boom and bust cycle and uh, it's all about what happens on a pitch on a Saturday or a Sunday or whatever day of the week. No, is the answer. That's not going to happen as long as Weber's at the helm. So ultimately you're looking for another Farker type appointment and if this is heading back to the championship and you need somebody to get yourself out of the championship, then there's no better man than Daniel Farker. He's got two championship titles on his CV. So, um, again, it's that it, that contradiction slash inherent tension between do you actually accept that this is a, let's put a, a yo-yo label on it, uh, footballing culture, but certainly in terms of oscillating between the two divisions. You're not hearing the top 26 mantra anymore because they hoped that was behind them and that they could now establish themselves as a top 20, if all things went to plan, a top 17 club in the Premier League, i.e. regular membership of the Premier League. But although we're not hearing the top 26 from anybody inside Car Road, if that is still ultimately what the the overarching ambition of the football club is, then you're accepting you're going to be up and down and up and down. And if that's the case, then I don't think a short-term knee-jerk managerial appointment that doesn't really fit the philosophy is really how Norwich will go. You can debate whether, to take your point, DF earlier, you know, the self-sustainable thing could work if they manage to stay up and maybe a Hodgson, for example, could allow them with his experience and his vast knowledge and his track record of keeping teams in the Premier League, could he get them to that bridge and get them over that hump? Um, And then you say, thanks, Roy, for your short-term firefighting mission. It's been a huge success against the odds. But now we're going to go back to a, a Farker-style coaching appointment. Possibly there's a way, there's a route to, to what they're trying to do there. So you still retain a true belief in the values that they've tried to instill in the football club at all levels, on and off the pitch. But I still don't see that. I still don't, I just don't see Daniel getting the bullet. And that's not just to reiterate. It's not going to happen anytime this side of Leeds. There's no moves inside the club. There's no feeling that that's how they want to go uh, with the head coach. Um, whether that changes the other side of Leeds, uh, if we're still talking about you know a tenth game without a win and an abject performance, then who knows? But certainly this side of Leeds, it won't be a change. And ultimately, it's in Daniel Farker's hands now. He's 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 if he's not already in it, he's entering the last chance saloon, and um, he's probably got a clump of games. Maybe maybe depending on how Leeds go, just the one game. But he's certainly got a few games uh, to turn this around. And if he doesn't. Then whether Far- uh, whether Weber wants it to do it or not, the trigger will get pulled, and uh, he will then have to ultimately, despite me saying how difficult the choice is to find uh, another head coach who fits the criteria, 
um, he will have to try and do that. And what we do know about Stuart Weber, I don't think he will be sitting on his hands and and suddenly it'll be Daniel's gone and then he turns over and it's a blank piece of paper. I think he will have succession planning in some shape or form and he will he will have targets in place. But I don't think there's any desire on his part at this minute to, to actively go down that route. So difficult, yeah. Ultimately, ultimately. Daniel Farker has to produce or will be out the door, but who follows next? I don't think it's clear. I really don't think it's clear. It's certainly not clear to the point where you could say manager X would be the next cab off the rank. I just don't see that at all. Yeah, I, I think it's far more likely it would be another overseas appointment, someone that we're not expecting or is maybe a bit of an unknown to us at this moment in time. Um, and if Weber hasn't got that name, that shortlist, um, I'm sure I'm knowing how he operates. I'd be very sure that he has already got a name in mind of who he would like to get if, if possible. Um, but yeah, I, I think it would be um, a failure in, in his duty, really, if he didn't have a shortlist of who could be potentially replacing the head coach in the situation they're in. And kind of just to, to finish part one with really, I, I think Weber is a big part of this as well, isn't it? We, we saw Farker sign a new four-year deal. There's still the uncertainty as to whether Weber, Weber will stay next summer. He suggested he might be willing to stay a bit longer because of COVID and Brexit and all, all the sort of stuff that we've discussed at length previously. But ultimately, if he, in the same way that if Daniel Farker wants to be a top coach and wants to manage in the Champions League and, and, and challenge for tro trophies and things like that, if Stuart Webber wants to be a sporting director at Liverpool or um, Manchester United or whoever it may be, he has also got pressure on him right now to get things right. And sporting directors at times have to make tough decisions. They have to replace a head coach who uh, obviously there's a great deal of affection and, and friendship between them. But he's always made clear that if he had to make that tough decision, he would do. And the ball is in Webber's court, isn't it? Yeah, and I think people will be looking on more with the fact that if this was any other club, Daniel Farker probably wouldn't still be here. Mm. He probably wouldn't, have, wouldn't just, have been here after Project Restart. I'll interrupt well, you, sorry, very slightly, but my girlfriend doesn't know anything about football. But when I came home last night, I was moaning a little bit. And she said, surely any other football club, he'd have been sat by now, wouldn't he? And literally, so she doesn't even follow football and she can see that that is the truth. And I saw quite a few comments like that on social media saying any one of the other 92 clubs, Farker would be gone by now. And that is true, isn't it? This is we're in this sort of weird, unique little bit of limbo. Yeah. And, and if they if they fail to win against Leeds, it, it'll be what, 19 Premier League games without a win um, across. I know it spans two seasons. So whether you, whether you want to judge it like that or not, 20, but that's, that's, be, that's, yeah. that's essentially half a Premier League season without a win. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it would be incredible for, for, for that to happen. And and any head coach, manager, irrespective of who they are or what they've done to be in post, I think. So it does it does become difficult. But as, as we discussed earlier, it's, uh, and as Paddy put so so well, it's, it's difficult for, particularly at the moment, um, to, to see, A, who they would get. And, and I think it would, it, would, it would have to be an overseas appointment. I think just, just the way they work and how they operate. But equally, if that person is in in post somewhere else, how you attract them to to come and work at Norwich City, given given the situation at the moment, it's it's not going to be okay. It's a Premier League job, and and so that may help in terms of attracting it. But in in terms of situation, it's a very it would be a very difficult um, club, a very difficult job for for anybody to walk into and, and and turn around immediately. So I'm not 
entirely sure um, a change of head coach it, it would dramatically shift things at this moment in time for, for where Norwich City are. Um, but equally, uh, as, as we've said, it, it would be an inevitability if, if this continues. So that's difficult. But there, another sort of side of this as well is their model. And we speak so much about it, this, this sporting director, head coaching, and, and the whole purpose of bringing it in was this idea that um, by having a sporting director, that that's kind of your pillar. That's the stability in the club. And that almost takes the pressure off the head coach to an extent. That position becomes a little bit more dispensable. And it, we're almost in this weird situation where they've probably got more stability from Daniel Farker at the moment than they have Stuart Webber. Um, you, you look at their respective contract situations. So that's that's another element. If, if Stuart Webber is going to have to go out at some stage and, and uh, recruit a new head coach, then they're probably going to, asking the question of, well, are you going to be here next summer? Because if I'm going to walk into a club and you're going to be my boss, if we get relegated and and then suddenly in the summer you wave, OK, I'm off and a new man's in, and, and they may suddenly decide that they don't want whoever that person is um, in, in post. So it, it doesn't help anybody, I don't think. And then, of course, this is all coming off the back as well of, of a club who in the summer lost its chief operating officer, saw uh, a few scouts uh, leave in, in, in fairly pivotal positions. It just feels like it's there's a real lack of, of stability at the moment and, and it feels like a club who maybe wasn't fully prepared for the challenge ahead in the summer. So I think there's, there's probably a, a lot of questions that will follow this week and um, that, that they're going to have to stand up to and take and and channel into a performance next weekend. But for me, if if we get to, uh, as I said earlier on, if we get to post Leeds and Norwich City haven't won that football match, then forget everything else. I think the supporters are, are, are going to be pretty unified and, and, and that response at, at Carrow Road is, is going to become pretty toxic and, and strip it all back. Um, Daniel Farco and, and the work he's done at Norwich City over the last four years, he doesn't deserve it to, to go that way. So... Yeah, at some point, if this persists, Stuart Webber's going to have to make a decision. And, and and if ultimately their form doesn't turn around, it'll be when rather than if we're talking about a, a new Norwich City head coach. But who that is and the profile of it and how they go about it, I think at this stage is, is potentially very difficult. Yeah, there was also a comment in our live blog saying that they'd be heartbroken to see Farker have to go through what Nigel Worthington went through in that game against Burnley when everything turned nasty or, you know, Gunny in the Colchester game. It's nobody wants to see Daniel have to go through all that. So um, I'm sure there will be a, a huge amount of people still will be desperately hoping that Daniel Farker can somehow find a way to get that win and keep going. Because as everyone has repeatedly said, he is a good man. He is a good character. He's done a huge amount for the club. He has had a massive, massive impact and is going to be remembered as a, as a legendary figure of the club. But it's very interesting times. Right, let's take a deep breath and we will come back to you for part two when we're going to talk Todd Campwell. Welcome to the new normal. Hello and welcome to this series of Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. Welcome to Weird Norfolk. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. From true crime to football, politics to folklore, for more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Archant. Right, uh, a few little bits of news just wanted to get through uh, before we get into the chat about Todd Cantwell, Billy Gilmore and the Leeds and Brentford game just to finish off with. Um, I'm sure you will have all have seen it. If not, um, head to uh, the EDP Evening News 
or Pinkham websites. Daniel Barden, the club's young goalkeeper, um, has been diagnosed with testicular cancer. They're hoping they've caught it early, but he is taking uh, time away from the game for treatment. Uh, the players were all wearing warm-up T-shirts at, at Stamford Bridge with uh, Barden 50 on and, and a supportive message on the front. So our best wishes go to Dan, who, of course, stepped in so well during last season when Tim Krull was injured is, is on loan at Livingston, hasn't really played a great deal. A um, couple of caps with the Wales under-21s um, in, in recent months as well. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed that they've caught that early and, and Dan can uh, get back on with his football career uh, unaffected. Uh, Christoph Zimmerman will be having ankle surgery. Daniel Farger had trailed uh, that ahead of um, the Brighton game. And that is, uh, I think Daniel said that would be happening on Monday. Sam Byram completed his first full week of training. So obviously they're still treating him with kid gloves. He's, it's not like he's going to be available for selection uh, anytime soon. Um, but a step in the right direction, certainly for Sam after over 18 months out. And Max Aarons as well was on Fabrizio Romano's Twitch stream, talking about his new agent and how Rio Ferdinand is his mentor. Uh, as me and Connor discussed a bit in our preview video on, on Friday night, um, you don't go on that sort of a show unless... Uh, Unless you are trying to raise your profile for potential transfers, I think it's probably not too controversial to say. Paddy, let's talk Todd Campwell. Uh, it was the big issue of the pre-match press conference and then he pops up at the walks on Friday night. And um, I put this to you in the car, really, didn't I? That, um, as we said in part one, we don't expect Farker to go before the Leeds game. But if, theoretically, he were to be dismissed or resign or whatever, and a new manager was put in place ahead of that Leeds game, who can you almost guarantee would be in the starting lineup against Leeds? It would probably be Todd Cantwell. Uh, well, possibly, yeah. Hopefully, maybe Zollis might get a look in as well. He's the invisible man at the minute. Um, for me, that's on a personal level anyway. But, uh, yeah, well, as we don't expect that to happen, and I don't think we'll be we'll be parachuting Todd back into his plans for, for Sunday. I think that much is clear from everything that Daniel said on Friday. Last... Uh, we kind of got into this a little bit on the pre-match team news at Stamford Bridge, didn't we? But ultimately, we take Daniel at face value, and you know this is this is really about Todd now knuckling down and training regularly, uh, week in week out, getting to the mental and physical levels required in Daniel's view to be a, a, a factor in his planning. Then, then the ball's firmly in Todd's court, and, and for me personally, it was good to see that you captain the side there at Kings Lynn. Um, Bit of extra responsibility there, he uh, you know, by his performance levels, by all accounts, anecdotally from what we've heard. Um, you know, he played very well and obviously got, got himself on the score sheet from the penalty spot, and th that's all he can do. You know, ultimately he'll come back into the mix now this week. Um, and if he shows by his performances in training, then I think it would be a good signal. I remember actually in the dim and distant, was it Josh Murphy got himself the wrong side of Farker and can't even remember what that was over, but uh, but he was I straight back in. Yeah, that Tim Closer in the boat. Yeah, that's it. But but I think he actually brought him straight back in. I think Reading off the top of my head springs to mind. And, and that was a bit of a surprise that, that having pretty similarly with a, a young homegrown player really really hung him out a little bit in public. Uh, he brought him back into the fold. So it isn't beyond the realms under this head coach. The, the precedent is there that Todd is back in the mix. But I think it's quite a leap to go from what he said last Friday to him in, in the 11 come, come Sunday against Leeds. But I think... For a manager who probably needs to earn a little bit of uh, brownie points from an increasingly growing constituency of Norwich fans, I think Campbell on the 20 long list when the team news drops Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoon 
wouldn't be the worst scenario, I think, because um, a team who have a chronic inability to score goals at this level or even create, you know, Brighton aside maybe, but create enough, then Todd Cantwell is in that equation all day long within the current roster, as is Jollis. Um, I think I think if Norwich had, uh, without wanting to go back in, in into the Chelsea post-mortem, but if, if Norwich had come out of that game, uh, it had been a very narrow defeat, um, but we'd seen more evidence defensively that, you know, they're on the right track, then then I think there's less of a call to do too much at the top end of the pitch. But, you know, if you've if you've pivoted away post-Watford from a lot of what you're about as a head coach in your time at Norwich and gone more defensively and pragmatically, and that isn't working either, albeit it was Chelsea, you know, testing the, the, the durability of Norwich defensively. But but if that doesn't work, then for me, where he is now, just roll the dice and 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 start to inject some of that creativity they're so sorely lacking. Sergeant and Pookie, not for me anymore. I think I think the time has come to break up that partnership. And uh, and if there's a vacancy, then I'd like to see Zolis in personally. And I think Rashika in, albeit smallest cameos, but he's not showing enough for me. I think we saw enough from Jolis, both against Liverpool and Bournemouth, uh, in those League Cup ties. And yes, we know it's the League Cup, but ultimately Sargent's had a run in the side and he doesn't look like a man capable of scoring a goal. So um, I'd like to see Jolis in. And, and, and I think in terms of trying to turn what could be potentially a very toxic afternoon this coming Sunday, little elements like that, you know, Cantwell back in the mix, Jolis maybe in the 11. I think they're the sort of elements that at least will bring some of the disaffected back on side, but then ultimately everything will be dictated by what the team he puts on the park produces against Leeds. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter what's said or done in the build-up. It's about now, the 90 minutes Sunday afternoon. So, um, Cantwell, yeah, like to see him back in the mix, but uh, under this head coach, given what he said to us on Friday, we're not going to be seeing him in the 11, I don't think. Yeah, it's about what happens behind the scenes at Colney this week, isn't it? In terms of whether they kiss and make up, whether Todd does enough to persuade Daniel that he's rowing in the right direction. Um, similarly, for the Leeds game, Connor, uh, Billy Gilmore will come back into availability, at least. Um, he couldn't play against his parent club. Where he popped up in the press box at the end, didn't he? Um, sort of uh, saying hello to the uh, Chelsea media team and, and things like that. Of course, his, uh, his club, where he's been for a few years now. Um <sighs> We, we discussed this a bit on, on Friday in the preview video, didn't we? But uh, Thomas Tuchel was quite strong with his quotes ahead of the game, basically saying, if you want to be a Chelsea player, you've got to be successful at the lone club. You've got to be the top player there. And no manager in the world leaves his best players out um, if he has to. So basically, he was saying he was putting the challenge very much at Gilmore's door that don't come crying home to me. You've got to go and make a success of it at Norwich. Yeah, and, and and I agree with him as well. Um, I, I'm I'm fascinated, really fascinated with with how Daniel Farker plays this because there's probably an argument to go either way, and um, you could look to throw in all, all your attacking elements and and maybe try and revert back to what Norwich City were, were good at last season, or equally you could see him going in the other direction and and maybe looking to be even more pragmatic and even more solid than perhaps they've been in recent weeks. So. Yeah, which one of those he chooses is is going to be really interesting and may well hold the answer to whether we'll see Billy Gilmore because um, Leeds at home, they're a possession-based side. That's that's going to be a game that's going to be on the floor. It may well be suited to Gilmore and his talents because the way Leeds play, the way they attack, the way they press, they do leave spaces to exploit. And if you've got someone 
who can play a pass, can pick a pass like Billy Gilmore, then that could be a key to um, to winning the football match if you, if you get him in a in a position where he can break their press. So I don't think any of the midfield three really state their claim. I think you'd probably have Mateus Norman in there, wouldn't you? Depending on what sort of shape Daniel Farker and, and Norwich go for. Um, and then I'm with, I'm with Pad. I think it, you've got to unleash Christos Solis. You've got to move away from from Sargent and Puki. What that looks like in terms of a formation or a setup, I'm not quite sure. Um, I wouldn't be a million. Uh, well, I wouldn't be surprised really if Norwich went back to a, to a four three three. Particularly given Gibson is is suspended, that may give them an opportunity too. But then, is Daniel Farker going to sacrifice what they've been building in the last few weeks with with a three at the back? I can't see it. Um, so so I, don't, I don't know is, is the honest answer. I don't know how Billy Gilmore gets in this team at the moment. Um, but if he can't get in, in, in the team after a midfield display like that, then I think in many ways the writing is, is, is probably on the wall for him at Norwich City, I would say, because if there's any any chance for him to get in, into this midfield, it would be after a 7-0 defeat, I would argue. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, he'd, be, he'd be well within his rights to be asking some big questions then, wouldn't he, as to why he was signed. Um, and Leeds, had, they've had a bit of an awkward start to the season, haven't they? Um, they are one of the teams they, that have got a win now. They beat Watford 1-0 earlier uh, or a couple of weeks ago. And they finished ninth last season. They impressed so much under Bielsa, didn't they? And, and Phillips, obviously very good for England uh, in the summer. Bamford has been a success for them. Um, Phillips was back on the bench as they they snatched a one-one home draw of Wolves on Saturday. Um, so they're, they're in terms of position, they're not great in in the table. And I just had a quick check. It looks like Bamford and Luke Ayling won't be back from their injuries um, for the Norwich game, based on what Bielsa had said ahead of that one. Um, Phillips didn't come off the bench, but you can just see him coming back and and inspiring them to something, can't you? Because he he's been in such sensational form this year. He is a huge hugely important player for them. They've got Dan James, who they signed from Man United, Rafinha. Anybody that looks at the Premier League table at the moment and sees Leeds as 17th and think that this is one where Norwich should definitely be able to win that one, would be forgetting a lot of what they've achieved under Bielsa, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would be. But but ultimately, as with Norwich, you know, put what's happened with Daniel to in the past to one side, it's about here and now. And, and if you look at Leeds, that where they are in the table... Um, one win, and that was against the Watford side, um, tells you that things aren't anywhere near us. I think I, the only time I've seen them really this season was, I think, when they went to United. That was, if not the open. Oh, you've gone on to mute, Pad. Sorry. Yeah, it was the opening day of the season, uh, and they got whacked 5-1, and uh, they looked not dissimilar to Norwich yesterday at Stamford Bridge in terms of so open um, mm. and so naive. And uh, looking at their results from afar, they've obviously tightened up a little bit. They're not I think Liverpool put three past them. But other than that, it's been the odd goal in a lot of the, the games that they've fallen the wrong side of. So, injuries to key men as well. That's worth reiterating. But it has to be, it has, going back to what we, we've said as a running theme through here, it, I, I don't want to hear about how what a messiah Bielsa is in the lead up to this game and how good Leeds are and how good Calvin Phillips is. Park it. I don't want to hear it. If you're a Norwich player or a Norwich fan, you don't want to hear it. Surely you want to be told that this is the game. These are the top of games against the top of opponents. This season, Norwich have to pick up points. Watford was in that bracket. They failed miserably. Um, and Brighton, OK, they ground out a point. Burnley, they ground out a point. But they haven't delivered so far in the games that you would pigeonhole as the ones they have to. And, and Leeds is very firmly in that category, irrespective of what 
that's happened at Stamford Bridge or the early part of the season. So has to be all about Norwich this weekend. And that's why I hope he goes for me a bit bolder because Leeds under Bielsa uh, will turn up and, uh, and and go for it. And um, and I think if, if Norwich just sit back and invite Leeds on, then, uh, you know, I think ultimately they'll probably come up short. So let's, let's probe Leeds for any vulnerability without the ball as opposed to, you know, a, a, a template that is almost... Um, conceding the initiative to Leeds because Leeds are the sort of team under Bielsa who, if they get any sense of, uh, you know, they can get themselves on top, I think they will bully Norwich. And um, and if that scenario plays out, then for all manner of reasons, uh, it could be a very, very toxic afternoon. So um, it has to be about Norwich this game, both in the build-up and on the day. Front foot, put your attacking players in the side and have a go. Yeah, the last time they came to Carrow Road, that 3-0 win, they were very, very good that day when they when Of course, Norwich went on to win the title and Leeds choked at the end of the season. But yeah, we know that Bielsa can get them really purring at times. Right, boys, thank you very much for your thoughts. Thank you very much for listening and tuning in to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast in association with Future Radio 107.8 FM. Keep it locked on the EDP Evening News and Pinkin content. We are chasing various interviews and stories at the moment. Uh, it's a, clearly a very lively time in this phase of Norwich City history and Although we've got to wait until next Sunday afternoon for a game that's been televised by by Sky um, for for kickoff, I'd imagine it's still going to be quite a lively week in the, in the build up because it is crunch time. There's no doubt about that. Leeds are in action on Tuesday night. They are at Arsenal in I think that's the fourth round of the League Cup, isn't it? Um, although it didn't seem to do Chelsea too much harm playing on on Wednesday night when they beat Malmo four 0 in the Champions League with a full strength side and then managed to tonk Norwich 7-0 barely three days later. That will do for this week. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch up with you soon.